Once again, we are at 1 Peter, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. Thanks, Kyle. Well, good evening again, Doxology. It's good to be with you. For those of you who are new joining us for the first time, welcome. If you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we just, we started this church in October, about five months before quarantine happened. And so we're just really glad to be meeting together as a church. And uh, as Luke said in the beginning, regardless of where you come from, we're really glad that you're with us and hope that you uh, see more of the beauty of Christ as you're with us tonight. And so uh, we just started a series last week in First Peter, and this, this book is so timely for us because so the, the book of First Peter is written to Christians who are in a situation very similar to the one that we are in today. So A, they're suffering, and then B, there's a great social cost to them following Jesus. And so that's very similar to, to where we're at. And so I know for a lot of us this year, either you or somebody you know, particularly in the year of 2020, has been experiencing a lot of angst and suffering. I don't know who in here is ready for 2020 to end, but I just never know what to expect, you know, the next weekend. And so I'm very eager for it to, to hopefully just move on and get to 2021. Uh, but then number two, with respect to there being a social cost of following Jesus, uh, increasingly in our culture, especially in more metropolitan areas like the D.C. area, Arlington, it's Christianity isn't just seen as one viable option among many for belief like it used to be. Uh, but increasingly, it's seen actually as a bad option, um, like something that's bad for society or for you to follow Jesus. And so Peter, the author, he is writing this letter as a sort of traveler's guide to those of us who follow Jesus and are pilgrims in this world. On just, he gives us a lot of very practical things. So how do you relate to your governing authorities, um, even when you don't necessarily agree or respect with what they're doing? Uh, what about your friends or your coworkers when there, there's a cost or they malign you for following Jesus? And Peter, the author who's writing this, so Peter often gets the, the rap of being kind of like the, the dumb uh, but well-intentioned disciple who was with Jesus because he was often very emotional, very rash. But Peter, the thing that he grasped toward the end of his life that drove him is that he belonged to Jesus. And when Peter, when it clicked that he belonged to Jesus, he couldn't get over it. And so... Uh, here in the first part of the letter, the first 12 verses, actually, before Peter gets to the uh, concrete action steps that you should be taking as a believer, all he does in this rich section is just over and over again, he presents to you the riches of belonging to Jesus. Because Peter knows that if you're a Christian, especially you've been a Christian for a little while, it's easy to, you know, if suffering comes or something in your life isn't going quite right, to be like, yeah, I, I know I belong to Jesus, check, but I need God to fix these things over here. And Peter says, if that's you, mm, you, don't, you don't get it yet. And so that's why here he's just harping on the benefits of your union with Christ. And so all we're going to look at in these uh, verses 3 through 5 are two things. Uh, so first we'll look at what does Peter tell us about how did you become somebody who belongs to Jesus, if you are a Christian? And then number two, what are implications of belonging to Christ. So number one, how did you become somebody who belongs to Jesus? And number two, what are implications of belonging to Christ? And guys, this, you 
probably sensed it as Kyle was reading it. These three verses are they're so encouraging. And God really met me in a way I really needed to this past week with these three verses. And I hope he does with you as we walk through this. Okay, so uh, first number one, how did you become somebody who belongs to Jesus? And so Peter says in verse 3, you know, just burst forth into praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to what? To be born again. So the way that you end up belonging to Jesus is God makes you born again. Okay? Or he gives you a spiritual rebirth. And when you hear that term born again, depending on where you grew up or what your influences were, you may have a different connotation of that phrase than what Peter's getting at. So one of the times that I experienced this, a little while ago, I was at Target, and I was in the deodorant section or something, and because things like this always happen to me, I don't know why, a stranger just struck up a conversation with me, and long story short, he found out that I was a Christian, and I was sharing with him how I ended up coming to faith, and toward the end of the conversation, a, a smirk appears on his face, and he goes, so are you a, are you a born-again type? And you see, what he thought is what a lot of Americans think, which is like if if you say I'm born again, that, that's because you're a specific type of person. Like often you're somebody whose life was a train wreck, and so you needed this crazy experience, and you became reborn, and so forth. And where this was typified was uh, if you read the news articles that were being written during George W. Bush's presidency. Um, so I just was reading an article last night in the New York Times that was written in 2003, I think, and. The author was talking about George Bush, and he says, yeah, George Bush you know, will publicly say, I'm a born-again Christian. And the author was saying how, so George Bush used to have a heavy drinking problem. And then around the age of uh, 40, he had this powerful religious epiphany where he was born again. And the author says this born-again experience is a kind of red state psychotherapy, <laughs> is, is, how he, is how he described it. I thought it was an apt description for how a lot of people think of being born again, right? Like you're, you know, it's a certain type of person that that happens to, but... What does Peter say? He says, he, God, God has caused us to be born again. So us, that's all Christians, all people who end up following Jesus, which is all different kinds of people. And where Jesus communicates this clearly is in John chapter 3 when he's talking to a guy named Nicodemus. Who's, Nicodemus is a very, he's a PhD kind of guy, like very smart. He's very put together. And he's just, Nicodemus is a good dude. Like, he's the kind of guy you would want babysitting your kids or watching your house while you're traveling. And Jesus tells Peter, or Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And so by Jesus telling Nicodemus and Peter saying here that anyone who belongs to Christ needs to be born again, what they're communicating is that to become a Christian, it's not like, it's not like, a lot of people think humanity's deepest issue is we're spiritually or morally unhealthy. And so what we need to do is get on a spiritual treadmill and work and work again to make ourselves more healthy. But what Christ and Peter are getting at is, no, the con- your condition's way worse than that. It's actually like, it's not like you're just unhealthy, but you have a heart condition. Or worse than that, you're, you're, your heart is dead. And so you need to be thrown onto the operating table and have somebody do surgery on you. You need to have something unbelievable happen to you. You need to have something insane happen to you. You need to have something from the outside happen to make you born again. And so what happens is, is it's not, the order isn't, okay, I have faith in Jesus, and then I have a born-again experience. It's, no, God rebirths your heart so you see your need for Christ, and then you run after Jesus Christ in faith. And so put succinctly, you could say that 
uh, this term born again, it means you did no more to make yourself spiritually born than you did to make yourself biologically born. So I've witnessed a birth now. It happened nine months ago uh, when Titus was born into the world. And I can tell you, Titus contributed nothing (laughs) to that birth, okay? There were other people working very hard to make that happen, okay? Kelsey being the primary person, and then all the doctors and nurses that were involved in birthing Titus into the world, and it's the same thing with you, where if you find Jesus beautiful and you, have a, you see your need for him, that's because God has done a lot of work to rebirth your heart and make you see your need for him. And so um, just some brief applications here. I think number one, a very clear one, is gratitude. You know, I encourage you guys just in your devotional time this week to just meditate on this and just thank God for doing this for you and to you if you know Jesus. And number two, particularly as we head into this fall, and probably what will be a tumultuous four, eight, 25 years, one of the saddest things that I'm seeing right now, and it's most clear online, uh, but it happens too just when I talk with people, is people who profess to follow Jesus, when they talk about people who are on the other side of a political divide from them, either in their words or their tone, Professing Christians aren't being much different from the world. Okay, like there's a there's an era of there's an era of like this person, I just I don't understand how they can have the position they have. And I am superior because I don't believe what they do. Like I'm somehow superior because I'm more open-minded than this person, or I've just seen more of the world, or I know more about policy than this person. Right? But you realize when you do that, essentially what you're saying is. I am somehow less deserving of God's condemnation than this person that's giving me a really hard time when, I'm, when I see what their political position is. And so, but what does Peter say here? How are you born again? It's according to God's mercy. Not because you were such an amazing candidate for salvation, but purely because of God's mercy. And so, I encourage you guys, and this may get harder after the election happens, depending on where you lean to just extend so much humility and compassion toward people who don't see the same way as you. This doesn't mean you don't disagree. A disagreement is necessary in a democracy. But what is your tone? What is your thought life like about people who, who don't hold those positions that you do because of the mercy that God showed you when you were an enemy of him? Okay, so uh, that's number one. How did you become somebody who belongs to Jesus? God rebirthed your heart so you see your need for Christ. You run after him in repentance and faith. And so... Next, number two, what are implications of belonging to Jesus? Because Peter's writing to people who are suffering. And if you've ever suffered, what you don't want is somebody just to come along with ivory tower theology that has no bearing on your experience. And so Peter gives his readers very earthy implications of what it means when we belong to Christ. And so the first thing he tells us is when you belong to Christ, you are given a new power. You're given a new power. And so think about the image of being born again. So when your parents birth you, you then have a combination of your parents' DNA. And with that, you have its attendant strengths and beauties, but also your parents' flaws and weaknesses. A lot of you see as you get older, you're more like your parents than you probably wanted to admit. So if God rebirths you, if God makes you born again, and God's spiritual DNA comes into your heart, like what kind of DNA does God have? 
I don't know, but it must be amazing, okay, is the DNA that you, that you have in your soul. And Peter gives some clarity about this. So see, Peter says, you've been born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection. It's through the resurrection that you've been born again. And so uh, places like Romans 8 say the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead gives life to your mortal bodies. And th- this is, this is mind-boggling. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus talks about when he returns and he's going to renew creation. And he uses a word there that means he's going to regenerate creation. And the New Testament authors use that same word to describe the power that's going to renew creation um, is the same power that goes into your heart when God makes you born again. And here's what the new creation is going to be like. So I think it'll, it'll be a little bit like this whole world has been, you know, locked in winter like Narnia, if you will. And then when Christ comes, it will be like the world sees its first true spring, its first true sunrise, and all the angst and anxiety and bitterness within you and all the mess that's out there will be completely wiped away. What kind of power is needed for that to happen? Supernatural power is what's needed. And that's the same power that comes into you when you trust in Christ. And so here's the implication is there are things that you are putting up with in your life right now that you don't need to. Like there is indifference in your heart toward other people. There is envy in your heart toward other people. Uh, There is a restlessness in your heart toward other people. You're not just a helpless bystander. God's given you a very real power through his spirit. And then also, remember Peter says he's caused us to be born again. He's given you a community to help you. And so... Well, I know some of you, you know, have had very powerful family histories for good and bad that have shaped you. Uh, You have certain personality traits that shape you. Those things do not have the final say in what defines you. Christ has the final say in what defines you. And so be careful of using, you know, your history or your personality type. You know, like, well, my Myers-Briggs or my Enneagram kind of defines how I am. So, like, I'm in it. I'm an Enneagram 9, and that means that, you know, I just enjoy peace and serenity, and so I just, you know, I can't engage in healthy conflict with people. No. Peter says that's utter something, okay, if you say that. And I was, I was talking with one of our leaders this week, and he, he um, what he said was, is he said, you know, one of the things that I found very helpful when I wake up in the morning is rather than thinking about just trying to avoid sin or temptation, although you need to do that, is thinking about as you go out and you're working and so forth, is how can I harness the power that God has given me today to pursue beauty and to do things that on my own I do not have the strength to do? That was just a very fitting way of describing how you utilize in the present the the fact that God has put this kind of power into your soul. Because that's the first thing you get that you belong to Jesus. Uh, Your nose should start to be bleeding a little bit. Number two, he gives you a new hope. Okay, so he says... You've been born again to a living hope. So it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope because we follow a resurrected and living Savior. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and what's your hope? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Captain Heaven for you. So it's an empirical fact that if you change the hopes of somebody, you change the entire trajectory of their life. So in the micro, if, if you know that you have a wedding next week, or you have a vacation coming up, or a month from now you're going to receive a trust fund with $10 million in it, 
that is going to change how you think and how you feel today. So what Peter is saying is you have a hope that is so much greater than the best hopes you've ever had. And he says you have an inheritance. So what's your inheritance is, in short, your inheritance is the new creation that you get when Christ renews the world. And most of all, your inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. And unfortunately, this, like what I just said, you kind of shrug at it. You're like, okay, sounds fine. But you, you have no idea how, how amazing this is. And so I was trying to think of how to describe this. So, so it compels us, like it compelled Peter. And uh, the other day I was, I was looking through the end of Return of the King, you know, the book, uh, J.R. Tolkien's book, Return of the King. And Tolkien actually describes, he, he tries his best to get at the feel of what this is going to be like when we receive our inheritance and we're with Christ. And so it's at the end where Samwise is returning back to his house. And you know, so Sam has just returned from a perilous, arduous journey where he's seen some of his closest companions die. He's seen his best friend withered away by evil. Uh, he's seen horrendous suffering. And eventually, you know, evil's vanquished. And he heads back home. And it says he's heading toward his house in the Shire. And so he's walking toward, you know, his home with the round door. There's grass, flowers all around. And you can see through the window. And it says, as Sam went on, he saw light and fire within a meal was ready, and he was expected. He was expected. And you see what Tolkien's getting at is when you finally arrive on those distant shores and you are with your Savior who pursued you and gave his life for you, that's what it's going to feel like. So, you know, he sees light, right? So that um, gets that unbelievable beauty. There's a fire within that gets an unbelievable comfort and warmth. There's a meal ready. Like, there will be a meal at the, new, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That gets that, like, deep companionship and satisfaction. And the, the part I love the best is, you'll be expected. As one author puts it, every single human being is born into the world longing for someone who's longing for them, or looking for somebody who's looking for them. That is at the heart of who we are. And Christ the King is eagerly waiting for you to arrive. So Peter says, this is the hope that you have. And the reason why you get often so up and down, and this is what I needed to push into hard this week, is because what you do is you anchor your, your okay, yeah, I have that great, but my real hope is here. But you see, what happens is, is when, when your hope is in, your happiness is rooted in like how your job is going on a given day, or what your body looks like on a given week, or what your family situation looks like on a given week, okay, you're always going to be like whiplash back and forth. But when you grasp what Peter's saying, like that hope of being with Christ completely demotes everything else that you tend to put your hopes in. And so it gives you a stability and a security. And so you're freed to love other people because when you're not getting what you think you should be getting, right, it's easy to fall into just a cocoon of self-absorption. But when your sights are, are set on what Peter is talking about, that's what actually enables you to, to love other people and get outside of yourself in the present. Because it's a, it's a living hope. And number two, why this hope is so meaningful is because this is the only hope that can get you through suffering. 
Because so what the world says is the world says you don't need Jesus to find meaning. You don't need Jesus to have a hope. So you, you can find plenty of good things, you know, in in beauty or in a partner or in family, right? And but you can only say that with a straight face if you screen out the inevitability of loss. Because the only things that the world can offer you will perish, spoil, or fade. And even when you get them temporarily, they never deliver on their promise. And one of the times where I felt this most poignantly was, this was three years ago, and one of my good friends that I've known since childhood, I can't think about my childhood without thinking of him in the, in the best kind of way, and I received a phone call one afternoon that he died. And I came out of nowhere, I didn't get to say goodbye, and as I was processing my grief, I ended up, I was, I ended up reading a book called Lament for a Son, it's written by Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a professor at Yale. And Wolterstorff is a Christian. And what happened with Nick is he said, so the book is a collection of journal entries he wrote when he was sitting at his office one day and his phone rang and he picked up the phone. And on the other end of the line was a friend of his 20-something-year-old son. And he said, you know, Mr. Wolterstorff, I just have to, I don't know how else to put this, so I'll just tell you your son was mountain climbing and he, he fell off the mountain and he died. I'm I'm so sorry. And so Walter sort of writes this book, and there's a line in there where he says, the pain of the no more outweighs the gratitude of the once was. Right? The pain of the no more outweighs the gratitude of the once was. In other words, Yes, let's have a memorial service and celebrate my, my child's life. Let's, let's talk about how he made us laugh and like the silly, ridiculous things that he did. But that is no match for the fact that I'm not going to have another day with him. And I would give anything for just one more day with my child. And when, what Peter's writing here is that you and I know that no matter how precious things are, no, no matter how imperishable things may seem in this world, everything that, that you hold most dear will perish, spoil, or fade. And when the no mores come, whether it's smaller things like the stability of your job or your health or like deeper things like your closest love relationships or friendships, when those no mores come and the grief threatens to overwhelm you, Peter says, you can have something so precious, so unbelievably precious. So when the waves of grief come, it's not like those disappear, but there is a joy underneath that that's more intense than the sorrow. And so his plea to you is don't wait for something like that to happen to put your hope in Christ, but make Jesus the center of your life now. Both so that you have them now, but B, so when those times are ready, you're, you're ready for it. Because that's the living hope that you get in Jesus Christ. Okay, so you get an unbelievable new power, you get an unbelievable new hope, and then number three, he tells you, you get a new promise when you belong to Jesus. And you see this in verse four, where he says, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who, by God's power, you is the who, so you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be re revealed at the last time. So God is both the one guarding your inheritance, and he is guarding you, the person who's going to receive the inheritance. And so if you want to hire somebody to guard something that's precious to you or somebody to guard you, 
I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with God. And, you know, because God's not like, so uh, in one of the Harry Potter books, I can't remember which one, I think it's the first one, you know, there's that giant dog Fluffy with the three heads who's guarding the Philosopher's Stone, I think is what it's called. And but so Fluffy looks ferocious and he looks like a good guardian, but then it turns out you can just play some music and the dog goes to sleep and you can get by him. Like God's not like that, where he he looks powerful, but then he'll fall asleep at the wheel. Like sometimes what feels like is happening, where God just feels like he's asleep at the wheel. But Peter says, no, God's keeping your inheritance for you, and it's by God's power that He's guarding you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And Peter's getting at what he harps on over and over throughout these first thirteen verses was. At the end of the day, your security is not rooted in your promise to Jesus, but his promise to you. Peter still can't get over it. And I think where Peter first learned this was during the the time that Peter walked on the water toward Christ. When they were on a boat, a storm came. They see Jesus in the water. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking toward Jesus. And so what happens? He sees Jesus coming toward him. And he's on the water, but then the storm intensifies. And so he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he fixes his gaze, and the storm becomes more real to him than Jesus. And so his faith drops in Christ, and and, uh, Peter begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and grabs him. And I, I think from that moment on, Peter knew that that firm hand who grabbed him, when his faith disappeared... And that tender heart that was behind the, the firm hand that grabbed him would always be there for him. But Peter had no idea how far Jesus would go to, to keep that until right at the end where Jesus is on trial and Peter's off to the side denying Christ. Like what Jesus needed was for Peter to come in that moment and just like Jesus had done for him a year or so ago, he needed Peter to then grab Jesus with a strong arm like, Peter, like Christ had done for Peter. But he didn't. And then Jesus was taken to the cross, and it's on the cross where Jesus Christ, he lost what was imperishable and unfading and undefiled for him from eternity past. The love that he had with God the Father is he was judged for the sins of the world so that people like Peter and people like me and people like you can have life eternal. And so if you can wrap up what Peter now has said in these first five verses, verses one through five, as Peter said, there are going to be times where you just don't know if you can keep going. And I've seen this a lot in the church, especially during the past six months. And you you don't know if you can keep going. You don't know if you've just blown it so hard that Christ can't put up with you anymore. But what Peter says is when the no mores come, and they will, and when suffering comes, and it will, and when your faith diminishes, and it will, you need to cling to God's promise that he foreknew you, he set his heart on you before the foundation of the world. And then when you came into being, he breathed life into you so that you became born again. Not just as some kind of thin reality, but to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an, in, to an inheritance that won't perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And when that day comes, you'll see light and fire within, 
there will be a meal ready and you'll be expected. So put your hope in Jesus today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, these things seem too impossible to be true. Um, Help us to taste and see it a little bit more than we did when we woke up this morning. Thank you for using people like Peter to write such an unbelievable letter. Um, Thank you for the experience that he has that he writes this. And Lord, I just, I pray that as we go throughout this week, Lord, that um, we cannot get enough of what you're telling us in your word. And so thank you so much for the hope that we have in the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.